Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. I want to speak a little bit today about the Word of God. And it's important that we consider what we believe about the Bible or the Word of God um, because everything else that we believe flows out of it. And everything else we believe as Christians depends on it. So, um, so it's kind of important that what you believe about the Word of God. Um, I, I always say um, when we um, at Ignite and Encounter 2, when we go through our statement of faith, often people are surprised that what we believe about the Bible is first. You know, we believe in uh, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testament as, in, uh, you know, as written in the original language as inspired of God and hold that as the final authority on faith and life. And, and people are often, in, you know, they're surprised, you know, why, why, why is your first statement of faith not about Jesus or about God? Why is it about the Bible? But obviously everything that we know and believe, everything really secure that we know and believe about Jesus and about God comes from the Bible. So what, what we believe about the Bible is important. And, and therefore it's a good idea to, to um, look at what we believe about the Bible and why we believe it. Because here's the thing. <clears throat> I found that many skeptics have faulty reasons for distrusting the Bible and many believers have faulty reasons for trusting the Bible. <laughs> um, and therefore, it's important for us to look at why we believe what we believe about the Bible. So, so here's my, my question to you this morning. How, how good are your reasons for either trusting or distrusting the Bible? Do you actually have reasons? You know? Often, I found that, that people, both believers and um, skeptics, don't actually have reasons for either trusting or distrusting the Bible. So, so let's, let's look at our, uh, some of our reasons this morning. I've often heard the, the claim, and, and that's the, the, the title of my sermon today. You know, while talking with skeptics, you know, people will often say to me, isn't the Bible just, you know, made up of cleverly devised myths? You know, when, when sharing the gospel or talking about Christianity to people um, who, who don't believe in it, I've, I've often heard this, this challenge, you know, isn't it just cleverly devised myths, you know, isn't it just a made-up story? And um, this week, well, actually the last two weeks, Rochelle and I, um, this is Rochelle, my wife, come stand here so I, people can see you. <laughs> come here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, yesterday um, Rochelle was doing uh, our daughter Kirsten's hair and she has this lovely curly hair, you know, and, and we were saying, oh, you know, we, we work together quite well, you know, to produce nice little, little babies with, with nice natural tans and, and, and beautiful curly hair. <clears throat> um, but we were, we were, you know, every evening, you know, as, as far as we can, we try and, after 
supper, we try and sit down with our kids, and then we'll read or listen to, we, we use the audio Bible and listen to a, a chapter of the Bible together as a family, and then we'll just quickly discuss it. You know, I'll ask everyone, okay, what stood out for you in the chapter and why? And then we'll pray together. And the last two or so weeks, we've been going through First Peter and then Second Peter, and I was just reminded how much, especially Second Peter has to say about the Bible, the Word of God, and how powerful it is. So I thought we can um, look at this scripture. This is Second Peter 1 from the 16 to, to 21. So let's, let's read it together. It says, uh, Peter, the, the Apostle Peter saying, uh, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories. The ESV says cleverly devised myths. When we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and, and glory from God the Father when the voice came uh, to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light, as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know, one of the first challenges as part of that um, challenge to, to Christianity, the Bible specifically, you know, isn't the Bible just made up of cleverly devised um, stories or myths, is the, the challenge, but, you know, the Bible was written by humans, just like every other book, just like the Quran, or just like the Lord of the Rings, or just like any other book that's ever been written, it was written by humans. And um, that is partially true, <laughs> because yes, indeed, the Bible was written by humans. There's no part of the Bible that was not written by a human. This passage actually says so. The Bible never denies that it was written by humans. So it's, it's, it's partially true that it was written by humans, but the reason why I say it's partially true and not fully true is it wasn't only written by humans, according to this text. Yes, it was written by humans, but it was written by humans who spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Bible, according to this scripture and according to Christian theology, is much like, the, the Word of God is much like the Son of God. The Son of God, Jesus, is both truly human and truly divine at the same time. And the Word of God is also truly written by humans in their culture, but also truly inspired by God. So there's a human author, but the human authors, in a sense, were used by the divine author to write it. And um, this... The, the, the phrase there um, carried along, you know, when it says um, prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That carried along by the Holy Spirit is a, is a Greek word that, that means, you know, driven or carried by a strong force. 
So for instance, if you think of taking a, a, a dead leaf or something and dropping it into a stream, and the stream carries the leaf along, it's, it's, it's that same kind of word. It's, it's used elsewhere in the Bible. There's one place, we can just bring up that uh, picture of the ship. Um, in Acts chapter 27, verse 15, where, where that same word is used, um, and it says, you can just go to the scripture. Okay. Um, well, anyway, what it says, it's, it's, it's telling the story, or Luke is telling the story of how they got caught in a storm, and it, say, it says, eventually, they tried to row, they tried everything, you know, that, that sailors can try, but they eventually they just gave in to the wind and they allowed the, they, they shipped the oars and they allowed themselves just to be driven by the wind. And it's that same, exactly the same word in the Greek. So, so it's, it's these human prophets were like a ship being driven by the wind of the Holy Spirit so that they went where the wind drove them, not where they wanted to go. And that's what, what P.T. is saying here. That's how the inspiration of Scripture works, that humans have a will, and they didn't lose their will, but God's will overrode their will, like a strong storm wind overpowers um, a ship. Um, you know, it, it's, it's like when, when I write with, with different pens. I can write with a pencil or a red pen or a black pen or a blue pen. Uh, it's still me writing, and the contents of the writing will be mine, but it will look slightly different. Now, now, God used different people from different cultures who wrote in different languages, in different styles. And you can see their culture. You can see their language. You can see their style. You can even see their grammar coming through. You know, I have a good laugh. You know, both Luke and Matthew use Mark as one of their sources. And, and, and they both correct his grammar a bit. Because they were more highly educated than he was. And his grammar, both his Greek and his Aramaic grammar, wasn't perfect. <laughs> you know, he's, he's sort of, um, and they, they correct his grammar. And I always have a good laugh when I see that. Um, so, now, now skeptics would obviously pro protest and, and say, but, but hang on, any, um, You cannot say that I must accept that the Bible is inspired by God because the Bible says it's inspired by God. I first have to accept it. And, and granted, you know, what, what I've given is a truth claim that the Bible was written by humans inspired by God. I haven't given you proof yet, okay? But you cannot say that that proof cannot come from the Bible. That would be like saying you cannot prove that this ring is made of gold by looking at this ring. Obviously, if you want to prove that the ring is made of gold, you have to look at the ring, okay? So, same, if you want to prove that the Bible is inspired by God, you've got to look at the Bible, Okay, so let's look at the Bible, and let's look at some of the evidence. Now, I'm just going to give some. I'm not going to give all the evidence. I, I could never do that. But I'm, I want to give you some um, evidence um, why the Bible is. So, so let's, let's think together. If this passage were true, and the Bible was written by humans who were inspired by the Spirit of God, if God is powerful enough to create the world. He's wise enough to do it. Because, I mean, this world that we live in is kind of amazing if you look at it carefully. Um, won't he be smart enough to include evidence in the Bible that he inspired the Bible? I mean, we do that. When you write the letter, you sign it. Okay? 
you put your signature on it. Um, you know, we, we put our thumbprint or our fingerprints on, on, on things, you know, to, to authenticate them. You know, when, when I marry people, you know, their, their left thumbprint has to be on the, on the, 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 the wedding register. So, so didn't God maybe put his fingerprints on the Bible? It doesn't make sense that he'd do that. So, so what, are, what would you expect if, if the Bible was indeed written by human beings from different backgrounds, radically different backgrounds and cultures? I mean, some 40-plus authors were involved in the writing of the different books of the Bible, Old and New Testament. Okay, and they came from radically different backgrounds. Some of them were shepherds and fishermen. Others were priests and kings. Okay? Like, they wrote in three different languages. Most of the Old Testament in Hebrew, some of it in Aramaic, and then the New Testament in Greek. Three different languages. They wrote over a period of more than 1,500 years in different parts of the world. Some of it was written in Babylon, as far east as Babylon. Some of it was written, you know, in Jerusalem, or some of it was written in Europe. All across the place. So written by different people, but inspired by one God. So you'd expect, despite the radically diverse background in every way, and they separated by culture, by you know, geography, you know, uh, by distance, by time, yet if it's inspired by one God, you'd expect there to be an amazing unity in the Bible. An amazing unity in the storyline of the Bible and an amazing unity in the message of the Bible. And that's exactly what you find. So, so I mean, the, the Bible's not like the Quran. The Quran was not even written. It was spoken by Muhammad. He was illiterate. He, did, he couldn't write himself. He had, you know, scribes who sat around and wrote down what he said. So, you know, if one person wrote the Quran, you'd expect there to be some unity. But if more than 40 different people from such varied backgrounds wrote the Bible, you'd expect if, unless there's something tying them together, the same source inspiring them, you'd expect them to write all over the place. And yet there's this amazing storyline that unfolds and has plot twists that are staggering and that make sense. And there are prophecies, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that tie in exactly with one another. Perfectly. Now, I, I want to submit to you that you, you cannot have that kind of unity unless there were indeed one God inspiring those radically different people who wrote the Bible. So to me, that's, that's one form of evidence. Um, another, what can God do that no human can do? God, there are a lot of things that God can do that no human can do, right? But one of the things that's verifiable is God can tell the future. We try to predict the future. We try and guess which team will win. Or, you know, if you're like me and you watch tennis, you know, which tennis player will win. You know, the Australian Open or whoever. I actually got it right. I said Djokovic was going to win. I'm not happy about it, but, you know, <laughs> I'm not always happy of being right. I'm not a fan of Djokovic. He's a good player, but I, I knew he's going to win because he's just so good. But um, it was still a guess. When, when, when you try and predict the future, even when we pre try and predict the future a few days in advance, 
you know, whether it's the weather, whether it's a, a sports match, and even if we have inside information and we've been following our team or the different teams and we have sort of an idea of how well they play and what form they're in, we still don't always get it right. But now try predicting things where it's not like a sports team where you can follow how good they are or in what kind of form they are. And it's not just a few days or a few weeks or a few months ahead. It's years, hundreds of years ahead. Can any human being do that? No, not at all. Not even close. And uh, in Isaiah 46, if you can just bring up that scripture, Isaiah 46 verse 9 to 10, God says, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And what God says, the way that you can know that I'm God is that I am the only one who can, from ancient times, from the beginning, tell the end. I can predict the future perfectly. Okay? And in that sense, um, fulfilled prophecy is like the fingerprints of God on Scripture. It's like God's signature on Scripture saying, authenticating Scripture and saying, I wrote this. Here's proof of it. And anyone who is interested in knowing whether the Bible really is true can go and check that for themselves. There are literally hundreds of prophecies about all kinds of things, about Israel, about nations that are fulfilled to the letter and that you can actually verify. If you, go, if, you, if you take the time to go and check it. Now, um, let's look at Jesus. Jesus, the Bible prophesies where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, when he would be born. Okay? It says, um, you know, in Genesis already, it says, you know, the, the scepter will not depart from Judah until he to whom it belongs comes. At the, at the end of, of, of Genesis um, Jacob, I think, uh, prophesies that. So when he would be born, his lineage, that he'd be descended from the tribe of Judah and from King David, uh, you know, and, and very specifically. So it's, it's not just, you know, from any nation in the world. It's from Israel. It's not just from any tribe in Israel. It's from Judah. It's not just from, you know, anyone in Judah. It's from the line of David. You know, it's, it's very, can you see how specific it is? Um, you know, his, his lineage, it prophesies his life, what, he, what his life would be like. It prophesies his ministry, what, what, you know, many different things about what his ministry would contain. Uh, his disciples, that he would have disciples, that he would be betrayed. His trial, his execution, his death, his resurrection, and much more. Much of which Jesus, I mean, where he was born and how he died, Jesus had no control over. What other people would do to him, Jesus had no control over that. Okay? And all of them are fulfilled to the letter. And these prophecies are recorded in writing in the Old Testament about Jesus. But not only are they recorded in writing hundreds of years, sometimes more than a thousand years before Christ came, they are also translated from the Hebrew into the Greek. So we have historical records showing us that these things pre-exist. Because these, these prophecies are so specific and so precisely fulfilled that many skeptics are tempted to say, no, they must have been written after the fact. 
but there's archaeological document evidence that they were that they predate Jesus by, you know, at least a few hundred years. And and to me that is powerful evidence that God wrote scripture because no human being could invent that. And and you know it's it's evidence that anyone who's interested can go and check for themselves. One of my favorite examples. Uh, one that I often mention in, in Ignite as well is from John 19, verse 23 and 24. It says, When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the, undergarments, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven from one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it? This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. And in that, that's a quote from Psalm 22, verse 18. And Psalm 22 was written by King David a thousand years before Christ. It says, they pierced my hands and my feet. And then it goes on to say, um, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. And, and just look how specific it is. His execution is by his hands and feet being pierced. And that was a few hundred years before the execution method of crucifixion was even invented and perfected by the, by the Persians and eventually the Romans. And then, not just they divided my clothes. Now, in those days, clothes were precious. It's not, you know, you didn't have like sweatshops in the Far East where clothes were made cheaply, you know, in those days and then imported. Clothes were expensive. And that's why the soldiers... They took the clothes and divided them. But then you had the seamless one, and they said, okay, let's not tear this. Let's cast lots for it. I mean, what's the chances that not only would they, they you know, divide the clothes, but then also for one piece of clothing they would cast lots to decide? I mean, it's so specific, and yet it's fulfilled to the letter in Scripture. So there is exactly the kind of evidence that we, in the Bible, um, that we would expect if the Bible were written by humans who were inspired by God. Now, what I gave you is just the tip of the iceberg. Now, a, a, another um, objection is, is then the accusation that the Bible is made up of cleverly divide, uh, devised myths. And, and this, this challenge is obviously not a new one. I mean, the reason why Peter says we didn't follow cleverly devised stories or myths is because that was the accusation that some people in his time already were making, okay? Um, and P Peter denies it, um, and he says, no, we were actually eyewitnesses. And, and the we there is, obviously, it's the, the apostles, but not only the apostles. There were also eyewitnesses who weren't Christians and who didn't become Christians, hostile eyewitnesses, people who rejected Jesus and continued to reject Christianity. But those people who rejected Jesus and continued to, to reject Christianity, none of them refuted or contradicted the eyewitness accounts of the apostles. They didn't say, no, we were there as well. These apostles are lying. None of them did that. Okay? Um, so just think about it. You know, cleverly devised myths or stories... Cleverly means you, you think about it. 
during the week, and he said, Let, let's think about that. Let's, let's think if we decided, you and I, Henny, if, you, if we decided to invent a religion 2,000 years ago in the time of Jesus, how, if we thought about it cleverly and we invented a religion, how would we invent it? So I want you to really switch our brains and think with me now, okay? okay? How would you invent a religion at that time? I mean, firstly, why would you invent a religion? Um, there's a, a, a well-known fiction author called L. Ron Hubbard who wrote science fiction, wrote like Battlefield Earth and a few other you know, science fiction books. And he was a very successful fiction writer, science fiction writer. And he said, he thought to himself, okay, I'm making quite a lot of money with my, by being a, a writer and author and by selling my books, but I want to make more money and I want more power. How can I get more money and power? And he decided... People make, who start religions make lots of money and gain, gain lots of power. So he's going to invent his own religion. And he called it Scientology. Okay? Um, and it worked. I mean, not only was he already a millionaire as an author, he became a billionaire as the inventor of a religion. And he gained so much power. I mean, now even after his death, in every Scientology church, there's an office for him. Yeah. And, and literally, he made billions. And the, sound, the, the Church of Scientology is very, very rich. So, so many people say, no, the Bible just contains cleverly devised myths that were designed to make the apostles rich and powerful. The apostles as the leaders and the creators of this religion. Now, now let's, let's think about that, you know. Um, okay, if we were to invent a religion about a Messiah who taught about the kingdom of God, who healed the sick and who drove out demons, how would we invent it? Firstly, we would invent a religion that's as easy as possible to believe. So you won't include things that are difficult to believe. Like the anointed king, Messiah, dying on a cross, the most shameful, painful death. I mean, that's not how you, you know, present the hero of your story, hanging naked in public. That, that, I mean, if you, if, you're gonna, if you want people to believe it, I mean, all people know the hero is supposed to win. He's not supposed to die, you know. So if you're going to invent a story, I mean, surely you're going to exclude those kinds of things, you know. And, and, you know, to be fair... One of the main reasons why many Jews, many Jews like the apostles became Christians, but many also didn't become Christians because they, they just didn't want a Messiah who was crucified. It was too shameful for them. It was too embarrassing. So, <laughs> number one, they firstly go wrong by including the wrong stories. You know, they include a hero that gets, that gets um, crucified, who dies on a cross. Secondly, you try to make the witnesses who testify to this as well, another thing, of course, I didn't even mention that, but is the resurrection. I mean, we think, we, we like saying that ancient people, you know, easily believed in the supernatural and wanted to believe in the supernatural. No, they didn't. I mean, C.S. Lewis says, the reason why Joseph, I mean, in, in, even in Joseph's time, I mean, they knew how babies were conceived. I mean, they, they weren't stupid. They knew that. And the reason why he wanted to put um, 
Mary away quietly was not because he thought that a miracle had happened, but because he assumed quite naturally that something else had happened. You know, something that he understood quite well, you know. And it's the same. I mean, in those days, you can go and read the literature. When people died, when they were dead, they were dead. They knew people didn't come back from the dead. Okay? So if you're going to invent stories for people to believe, you're not going in- to include those kinds of things that are difficult to believe. Okay? And we see it in, in, in Acts 17, the people, when Paul starts speaking about the resurrection, you know, the philosophers are like, whoa, we were with you, Paul. We were with you, you know, all the way about creation, all that. Guy. But when you came to this guy, Jesus rising from the dead, no, thank you. We're not even interested to listen to that. Okay. Secondly, if you're going to invent a religion, you would try to make the witnesses as acceptable and convincing as possible. Now, here again, the apostles seem to make a mistake because the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection are women. Now, just for the record, in, in our day, men and women are seen as, as equals. And Jesus... But we forget that Jesus was kind of unique and radical in that he had female disciples whom he treated as equals. That, that was not the standard in those days. Both the Jewish and the Greco-Roman culture saw women as inferior and made no, made no um, you know, bones about it. I mean, Jews, thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Literally, they pray that every day. <laughs> Women's testimonies in a court of law counted less than, uh, you know, you had needed at least two women to, to match the testimony of a man. And, and not only amongst the Jews, but in the Greco-Roman culture, even worse. It was, it, it was even worse. Um, some of the early, um, you know, anti-Christian apologists, you know, what they do is they attack the resurrection and they say, look, women were the first eyewitnesses. You you, you can't trust them. Women are so emotional and so, you know, frivolous, you know. Literally, that's what they say. Celsus was this guy's name. You can go and look it up if you want to. So, once again, if you're going to invent a religion, you're not going to, you're going to invent eyewitnesses that are acceptable or most acceptable to your culture and to the people you're trying to convince. Why would they have recorded women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection? Because they really were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And, of course, Jesus valued uh, women in a way that uh, the culture of his time didn't. Um, thirdly, if you're going to invent a religion, you'd make, we, if we're going to invent a religion, we'd make ourselves as the leaders of this faith or, or religion look good. <laughs> I mean, if the apostles were going to do that, they could have done a lot better with the gospel because they look like a bunch of palukas. <laughs> They look, like, they look like they're thick. And Jesus tells them the same thing over and over, and they don't get it. They don't get it. And not only that, but they look cowardly, because when Jesus is in trouble, they run away. After Peter, the very self-same Peter who wrote this letter said, Lord, even if I have to be imprisoned or die with you. And the guys come, and he bails. <laughs> he runs. They don't believe Jesus when he says he's going to be resurrected. Even when the women come and tell them the tomb is empty, they're like, no, this can't be true. Only when they run and go and see for themselves do they believe it. Now, if you're going to invent a religion, you're surely going to make yourself as the founder and 
leader of that religion, you're going to make yourself look good and respectable. They didn't. Why? Because they were telling the truth. And they had to grudgingly admit, listen, we didn't look that good, you know. <laughs> we didn't measure up. Fourthly, you're going to make the religion, you're going to invent a religion that is as financially and socially beneficial to you as possible. You know, you're going to do like L. Ron Hubbard did. And it, you're going to create a religion that's going to make you rich and powerful. Not only did the apostles not become rich, but were killed for their faith. A little stupid to invent a religion that's going to end up causing your death. And, and all of them died being tortured to death, crucified, all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and the, the executioner said, all you have to do is deny your witness that on the third day he rose again and, and your life will be spared. And none of them did. They all died. They signed their eyewitness testimony in their own blood. If you can't trust that, what can you trust? So, <laughs> we see that the New Testament authors tried to do none of the things that people inventing a religion for money and power would do. Um, another accusation or claim is that um, the Bible has been disproven. You know, may, maybe people will say, you know, okay, maybe the eyewitness testimonies, if you read it carefully, does actually ring true, you know. Um, it, it has the, the, the ring of truth to it. But, you know, maybe it's not cleverly devised myths, but science has disproven the Bible. Um, I was um, working for the church in uh, for Shofar and Stambosch, and, and we had quite a big setup. There was this big hall that we had to set up, and afterwards, you know, we had to pack the chairs and stuff away. So I, one day, I, you know, I was sort of overseeing this and, you know, carrying all these heavy chairs, and this group of, uh, I think it was about four guys, um, came to me. Well, they came knocking at the door, and someone called me and said, Any, there are this group of guys that want to talk to you. And it turned out they were atheists, and they said, no, they, they sort of psyched each other up, and they're going to go to the church, and they're going to, you know, you know prove to, this, to the pastors and to the, the leaders there that, that Christ, the Bible is wrong, you know, and that science has disproven it. And to, to some extent, they sort of caught me off guard, because I didn't expect it, and I didn't know who they were and what they were, wanted to talk about. So when they started throwing the accusations, you know, I... I don't know whether I answered them very well, but afterwards, you know, you, you know, always afterwards you think, you know, because you know, I should have said this, because one of, one of the things that the guy said, I don't know if I put the scripture up there, but in, in 1 Samuel 2 verse 8, for those of you who are taking note, um, Hannah, she didn't have a, a, a baby and she prayed, and then God gave her Samuel, who became the prophet Samuel, and um, at one stage she prays and she says, um, God is enthroned. Um, she talks about in this prayer about the foundations of the earth. And these guys were saying, you see, the Bible thinks the earth has foundations. I mean, how ridiculous is that? You know? Um, I've heard another guy say, yeah, in chapter 3, you know, after the fall, you know, God curses the snake and says, on your belly you will sail and, and dust you will eat for the rest of your life. Snakes don't eat dust. <laughs> Snakes are carnivores. They... And there's, there's this other one in, in Matthew 5, verse 45. It says, God makes his son to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
And people will say, no, but the sun doesn't rise. We know that the earth rotates around its own axis, and it only appears like the sun rises. The sun doesn't really rise. If God thinks the sun rises, if the Bible says that God makes his sun rise, then, 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 then he's saying that the sun goes around the earth rather than the earth around the sun. Now, are all of are, are those, you know, proofs that science has disproven the Bible? I think it's proof that science has disproven someone's misinterpretation of the Bible. Because, I mean, when Hannah's praying this prayer, it's a, she's in poetic language talking about the foundations of the earth. It, it doesn't mean that she literally thinks the earth has foundations. When it says the, that the snake will eat dust, it's, it's, it's a figurative way of speaking about the fact that he will not have legs, that he'll sail on his belly close to the ground. Okay? It's, it's not literal language. When the Bible says that sun rises, or God causes the sun to rise on the righteous and the wicked, he's exactly speaking to people from their perspective. Okay? So, so it's called phenomenological language. It, it's quite acceptable to say that, to describe things in the way they appear without necessarily meaning that you think they really work that way. I mean, today even, we talk about sunrise was at quarter past six. You know, the weather department does that. I mean, if anyone should know <laughs> that the sun does not orbit the earth, it's the weather department, right? It's a meteorologist. But meteorologists still talk about sunrise. Why? Because from our perspective, the sun appears to rise. So it's quite acceptable in language to describe it that way. That doesn't mean you think that the, the sun really orbits the earth. So here's the point. Science hasn't, in my opinion, or as far as anything I've known, disproven the Bible, but it has disproven people's misinterpretations of the Bible. But if you interpret, science, if you interpret the Bible correctly, science actually confirms it. Let me give you one example. This is just one example. If you can bring up that picture of the earth, uh, please, Radim. Um, in... Um, in Isaiah 40, verse 22, it talks about the fact that the earth is round, appears like a circle. In Job 26, verse 7, it talks about the fact that the earth hangs on nothing. It's suspended on nothing. Now, to us, that is not news, because we've seen many satellite photos of the earth. So we know it's a globe. We know it looks round. And we know it hangs in space on nothing. So to us, that is not news. But this was written by Isaiah more than 500 years before Christ and by Job 1,500, 2,000 years before Christ, before there were any satellites, before there were any spaceships that went into... Uh, you can only know that if you see earth from the outside. You cannot know that if you see earth from on the earth. Just go to that picture again of the earth. You have to see it like that from the outside. Just know that it's round and that it hangs upon nothing. How did those guys know it at 500 years, 1,500, 2,000 years before Christ? How did they know that? Only if they were inspired by someone who saw earth from the outside. 
That's just one. That's a small thing. Okay, so um, another one, if you can just bring up the next uh, picture. Uh, there was this news report of, of this, this group of, of archaeologists who said that the kingdom of the Hittites, which is mentioned quite a few times in the Bible, didn't exist. And, and literally, I think God held back the discovery just, you know, probably for a few months. Just three, a few weeks or months after that, they dug up the capital of the, of the kingdom of the Hittites. And, and there are some, you know, photos of, of some of the archaeological digs and stuff and, and, and the stuff in the capital that they found. I asked Tony just to come forward quickly. Tony um, shared with me that, um, you know, she, she wasn't raised in a very Christian family, and, and she, in university she became an atheist, and she had a very interesting sort of just story of, of um, how she came to faith, despite the, despite the skepticism that I just wanted her to share with us. So thanks, Tony. Morning, everyone. Um, yeah, like Henny said, my name is Tawny. Most of you probably haven't seen me. Um, I actually go to the evening service, but yeah, um, this is my testimony. So as Henny said, I was actually brought up um, in a more of an atheist, agnostic sort of household. Um, my parents never really pushed any kind of religion on me. Um, they felt that my sister and I had the, the, like the freedom to choose. And as a child, it's strange, like I remember talking to God uh, he was very real to me then, and I can't really tell you why I believed in God, but God was just there, and I would talk to him. But over the years, my understanding of Christianity became shaped by the world. And, yeah, so I actually went to a Christian school in my early primary school, and unfortunately there I kind of got shunned because I didn't go to Sunday school. So I learned, yeah, some, I got a lot of scars from that. Um, and shortly after that, once my parents realized that I didn't have a lot of friends in Christian school, they sent me to another school where the education was fantastic, but it was a Catholic school. So that is where I learned a lot about shame and about a God that was only happy with good works. And yeah, unfortunately, I carried a lot of these scars all the way through high school and then into varsity. In 20, or 2009, I started studying geology, and here the world of science started opening up to me. Uh, many of my lecturers were agnostic, some of them were atheist, and some of them would make it their mission to disprove the Bible. And just one example that I mentioned to Henny was how my lecturer would, he spoke about um, the floods of Noah and how scientifically we disproved that. And here I started thinking everything that I understood or under, like what I knew of the Bible was slowly falling apart and it was being chipped away. And one night I was finishing off the final chapter of the book called The Last Battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. I have no idea how I got to read that book, but there I was. And interestingly enough, I read about the characters and how they had a choice as to whether or not they wanted to follow Aslan. That night I spoke to God for the last time, for what was going to be a very long time. I walked away from what I understood to be an unloving and a condemning God. Weirdly enough, I felt the weight of the world that lifted off my shoulders, and I felt like I was free. I might have walked away from what I thought was, well, what was a very inaccurate picture of God, but unfortunately, I walked away completely from God in 2011. And as, as humans, we can't not have a God. So I became God of my world, and science became my knowledge. Well, sorry, science and knowledge became my Bible. As the years went on, science just kept on giving these wonderful logical answers. I was still quite happy and satisfied with just how it kept on explaining away God. 
And as soon as I felt him get close, I'd just go find something else that would just chase him away. In 2018, through a whole series of God incidences, I actually lost my funding for my postgraduate degree, and I was forced to start looking for, for work. So I started working in um, a small mining company, a little consulting firm, and I was working with this woman. She was absolutely brilliant. She just understood so much about the world. She was knowledgeable. She was hardworking. She, was, she inspired me in so many ways, and she still does today. And this one day, I, we got on our way to a mining site. We were going to do a site visit. And so, sorry, I'm going to go into a bit of mining lingo here, but she was describing the time where, like, whenever she would go down after a blast, so they would obviously blow up the ore, and it would come down and expose what we call the stope face. And she said, like, she would walk up to the stope face, and she would just look at these rocks, and she realized the last person to see these rocks was God. And I remember sitting in the car, and I just looked at her, because for one thing, I obviously didn't think very highly of Christians at this point, um, so I was like, I love it how the Bible puts it. It's like scoff. And I scoffed. <laughs> so I look at her and I'm like, this woman's a Christian. And secondly, what I realized was that my science and my geology hadn't actually explained away God. I felt my world of cards. They started to, it started to fall. And the Lord started pressing in quite. He might do it gently, but he was pushing in. The next few months were pretty messy as my pride couldn't withstand what I now know to be the love of God and Jesus coming after the one last sheep. In 2019, I handed in my resignation as God of my world, and yeah, I did a terrible job at it, really terrible. And in 2019, I was baptized. Um, what's interesting to me is that like, the world will tell you that knowledge is power, but I read a, a quote by a guy named Aaron Armstrong, and he's, the way he puts it, he says, you can have knowledge without wisdom, but you cannot have wisdom without knowledge. And now I know just how the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I love to hold on to that every day. I'm still a science at heart. I'm very curious. And I wrestle with a lot. So wrestling is a daily habit of mine. Um, but what I love is that I know that the grass will wither and the flowers will fall. But the word of the Lord will always stand forever. Thanks, Tony. And, and so, um, you know, often people try uh, speak about, you know, science as opposed to religion, as though those two are incompatible. But as you can see, um, there, are, there are many intelligent scientists who don't believe the Bible, but there are as many intelligent scientists who do believe the Bible, you know? So, 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 so clearly, um, you cannot say that science has disproven the Bible. You know, if, if equally intelligent people on both sides, if, if, if there's one group that says no, you know, if I evaluate the evidence as an intelligent scientist, I find it hasn't disproven the Bible, you know. So, uh, I just want to end off with this. Um, all, most of the stuff I mentioned above are sort of head reasons why we can believe the Bible. But often, underneath those head reasons, there are heart reasons. Um, I saw an interview by, um, with a guy called Frank Turek, who's, who's quite a well-known apologist, and he says, there's one question he, we always ask skeptics and atheists and so on on campuses. He says to them, if the Bible were true, if the Bible were proven to be true, would you believe it? And he says, more often than not, they say, no, never. <laughs> and that shows you that it's not always 
a rational decision to disbelieve the Bible, to not trust the Bible. It's not always based on the evidence. It's not always... You, you can give... You know, someone can give you all the right head reasons to believe the Bible, and you could still choose not to believe the Bible. Why? Because there's some other heart reason underneath that causes you to not want to believe the Bible. You know, with, with Tawny, it was the fact that she had, in Christian schools uh, and in ca- Catholic schools, she had a bad experience with Christians, and, and there was hurt that came with it. For so many people, there's, there's that hurt. For so many people, it's like, I don't want to lose control of my life. I like being God of my life and controlling my life and deciding what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. I like, you know, having sex with a lot of different people. I like spending my money on myself. I like being self-centered. I, I, I don't want to, you know, give that up. I don't want to give up control of my life. That'll be too inconvenient. I, I don't want some other moral code, you know, the inconvenience of some other moral code that I have to obey. You know, and that's going to make me feel guilty. I don't want that. So there are many different reasons, heart reasons, why people don't want to believe. And, and we should be honest with, uh, with ourselves and, and, you know, look at those reasons. In, in um, 2 Peter 1 verse 19, it says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. He talks about the dark place, the world which is a dark place, and he talks about our hearts. And he says there's darkness on the outside in the world and there's darkness on the inside in our hearts. And we need the light of God's word to light up our world so that we can properly understand our world and to light up our hearts so that we can properly understand ourselves. And the reality is, Often we don't like that light. We prefer the darkness. As human beings in general, I'm speaking now. We prefer the darkness. But we need the light. You see, the problem is the darkness hides your faults, yes, to some extent. But the darkness also hides the dangers to you. And you fall into them when you cannot see them in the darkness. We need the light of God's word to light up our world and to light up our hearts. And, and he says, you do well to pay attention to it. If the Bible really is the word of God and if it really is the light of the world that lights up our world so we can understand it and lights up our hearts so we can understand ourselves, then we do well to pay attention to it, to listen to it, to live according to it. We know that you don't live well when you live in, a, in the dark and when you, when you deceive yourself. And, 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 and here's the thing. The, the Word of God doesn't help you unless you pay attention to it. You can hear the Word of God and you can shine its light and hide from its light and cover yourself with all kinds of stuff, you know, and, you know, try and avoid the light of God's Word. And, and we're all tempted to do that because we don't like to see what our world's really like and we don't like to see what our hearts are really like. And so there are many people who can sit in church week after week and dodge the light. And the light shines on them and they feel guilty about it, but then they start hiding and, and, and justifying. And, and it's very easy for all of us to do that. But the Bible says we do well. Peter says we do well. To pay attention to the light. And Peter was the guy who denied Jesus three times. 
And he had to repent in tears. And the gospel which records the fact that he denied Jesus three times, he wrote that gospel. Well, his translator Mark wrote the gospel, but he narrated it. He came to a place where he admitted that the light exposes things in my life that need to change. But here's the good news. If you're afraid to lose control, if you're afraid of all of those things that I've mentioned, think about this. If the Bible is true, then number one, God knows better than you. And he knows better how to run your life than you do. Number two, he wants what's best for you. He knows what's best for you. Number three, he's so committed to what's best for you that he was willing to die to purchase that for you. If the Bible is, don't you at least want that to be true? And as Christians, don't we want to live as if that is true by trusting God and trusting His Word and doing well by paying attention to it and living according to it? Our lives will be so much better than if we live according to what we think is best. If we, like Tony said, if we are the gods of our own life. So my invitation to all of us whether you're a skeptic or a believer, is let's hand in our resignation as God of our lives and let's allow God to be God. And, and that means listening to His Word, paying attention to His Word, and obeying His Word even when we don't understand it. We want to first understand before we obey, right? That's our natural thing. Well, if, if, that's, if that's your thing, don't get children. <laughs> because... If you have children, you're often going to have to tell them to obey even though they don't understand. <laughs> because you know it's what's best for them. So let's admit that we are children. I mean, the, 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 the knowledge and wisdom gap between an adult, a, a parent and a child, is smaller than the knowledge and wisdom gap between us and God. God knows so much more than we do. And we do well to pay attention to His Word and submit to it. Amen? Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.